baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. Just a few days ago, the possibility of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia remained unthinkable to many. But then, it happened anyway, shattering decades of peace between European countries and raising the prospect of a new Cold War. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. The events of this past week have changed the course of global history in ways that are only beginning to come into focus. Today on the program, we consider just where it is that we might be headed now. Putin is making a direct assault on the European security architecture that has really protected the West, protected in many ways Russia, since the end of the Soviet Union, and now it's all under question. In just a little bit, we'll be getting some perspective on the global security outlook as the conflict in Ukraine sends shockwaves around the world. But first, of course, those shockwaves are being felt here in the Bay Area as well. Thank you all for coming. Um, In a moment, we're going to sing the Ukrainian national anthem together. Over the past several weeks, local residents with ties to Ukraine have been organizing in solidarity raising funds, advocating for political support, and holding rallies like this one, which took place Thursday morning on the Stanford campus, less than 24 hours after Russia began its invasion. So, to be honest, I like feel so powerless now. I don't know what to do, where to go now, because... The speakers, many of whom have family members still living in Ukraine, told the assembled crowd about their sense of shock and fear as the attack began to unfold. My sister woke up in Kiev, which is the capital, from the airstrikes. This is a new reality. Uh, my cousin is in the municipal government in Krivarikh. He is organizing the territorial defense. When people really ask me how I'm doing, like I'm thinking about my mom who is sitting like with the her brother and his family with a newborn, like one month old, in the basement. And it's just horrible. They expressed pain, they expressed uncertainty, but they also expressed resolve. We're ready to fight, but we need the support. Everyone can do something, and that something counts. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you. 
After it was over, I caught up with one of the student organizers, Katerina Buchatsky, who herself grew up in Kyiv. Her feeling at that moment? It's mostly anger, not just that this is happening right now, but that this happened eight years ago, and Russia and Putin's regime faced no consequences. That frustration, part of why this time she and her fellow organizers are hoping to strengthen support for sanctions against Russia, making a direct appeal to attendees to call their congresspeople and advocate on behalf of Ukraine. I spoke with Puchatsky more about what she believes can be accomplished here, half a world away from the conflict. And so organizing this today, what message are you trying to get across to other students? What are you hoping that they'll do with what they've learned today? I think that the biggest thing, you know, I've often found the phrase raising awareness to feel like quite a helpless phrase, but I think that Poon's rhetoric on the existence of the Ukrainian state made it clear that since this is a fight about information, this is a fight about history and historical revisionism, it's absolutely crucial that people here know that Ukraine is an independent nation, that Ukrainians have a sense of national identity, that we have our own borders, our own culture, and just people here knowing that and being at this rally is important because I'm afraid that years from now, if this conflict goes on, the history books are going to start saying otherwise. Um, I don't know how deep Russian propaganda is going to go, but it's important that in this moment in time, people know that this is not what we want, because I'm afraid that there's a lot of narratives about Eastern Ukraine that have evolved in the years about, oh, this is what the Eastern Ukrainians wanted. Um, There was referendums and things like that. He's already completely distorted the narrative about Crimea, and I want to end, I want to make it clear right now before anything more happens that people here can see it and hear it from us directly, that this is not what we want and that we are going to fight for independence no matter what happens down the line. Do you think Bay Area residents have a role to play at this moment in international history? Absolutely. I think that all American citizens and citizens of the world have a role to play in international history because um, it's clear that this is something bigger than a local conflict and it's going to come knocking on Europe's door in probably just a few months and that is going to deeply affect American citizens and citizens of the world. And so keeping up the pressure is most important because world leaders and the news cycles are quick to forget and move on. So Bay Area residents, seeing our faces, personifying the issue and knowing that we are pleading directly to them to keep up the pressure is going to be important so that the world doesn't move on so quickly. And uh, finally, just seeing the turnout, you know, several at least 100 of your uh, fellow classmates turned out to show support. What message do you think that sends? How does that make you feel seeing that solidarity? It's amazing. Um, I think that I've been so overwhelmed by the amount of support that I've gotten from my fellow classmates. And it's amazing to see that this is not an issue that just touches you know, me and those that are closest to me. There are people here that I'm not necessarily super close with that I never thought would ever think twice about anything that was happening to me or my country and yet they showed up here regardless, took time out of their day and that to me is incredibly courageous and incredibly inspiring because it shows that this is not just about something my family, my best friend is going through but people can show support for strangers and that's going to be important here because for a lot of Americans, millions and millions of Ukrainians are strangers and showing empathy and realizing that people can feel our struggle even if they're not necessarily connected to it, that means a lot. And that was Katerina Buchatsky speaking on the Stanford campus 
the morning after the invasion of Ukraine began. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. This week, Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered an invasion of Ukraine, marking the largest ground war in Europe since World War II. Today on the program, we consider the far-reaching aftershocks of that decision. So far, we've been hearing about some of the pro-Ukrainian organizing that's been taking place here in the Bay Area over the past few days. Up next, we broaden the focus to try to get some handle on what the events of the past week will mean for the global order. Joining us to help out in that conversation, I have three insightful guests. Uh, first up, we're going to be welcoming on Donald Jensen. He is a former diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, currently serves as the director of Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Donald Jensen, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Also welcoming on Joe Cerincioni. He's a national security analyst and author, also a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Formerly, he was uh, the president of the Plowshares Fund. Joe Cerincioni, welcome to you as well. Well, thank you, Keith. A pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And finally, welcoming on my colleague, Jason Brooks. He is, of course, a KCBS radio business reporter, also the host of the Crisis Next Door podcast. Uh, Jason Brooks, welcome to you. Good to be here, Keith. And uh, as we just mentioned, Jason, uh, you do, of course, have your weekly podcast, The Crisis Next Door, covering global crises. And uh, today, your expertise is tragically relevant. Um, To get this conversation started, set the table a bit for us, if you could. Remind us how we got here. What led up to Thursday's invasion? We won't go so far as back as the breakup of the Soviet Union coming up on 30 years, but we will go back to 2014 That is when Russian forces uh, moved into eastern Ukraine in the Donbass, the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, and led separatist forces in a breakaway fight against Ukrainian forces. And in the same year, Russian forces, uh, little green men, because they did not have Russian insignias on their uniforms, landed in the Crimea and annexed the Crimea. That has led to eight years of sporadic fighting, especially in eastern Ukraine, between Ukrainian forces and those Russian-led separatist forces. Uh, During that time, Vladimir Putin has used his calculus of what world politics are shaping up as, and he, in the past year, figured that this would be the right time to make a move on Ukraine. In in recent months, uh, Russian forces gradually built up a cordon around much of Ukraine, uh, about three quarters of it, uh, moving into Belarus and also moving uh, the forces all around Russia and down around the Black Sea to the south of Ukraine. Uh, for weeks, there have been warnings from the U.S. that Russia was planning an imminent invasion of Ukraine. Other world leaders did not see that happening. They thought Putin would simply try to further destabilize the fledgling democracy in Ukraine. Uh, But of course, this past week, that all changed when Russian forces indeed launched their attack on Ukraine, now embraced in a very, very desperate fight with Ukrainians. Yeah, so that is the buildup to where we are now. But really, uh, I think it's right to cast these events in historical terms because we have been hearing uh, several times in recent days that this is the largest conflict on the European continent since World War II. Jason, expand on that a little bit, if you could. 
how should we be thinking about this conflict as it compares to what we've seen before? I mean, it's really not like anything else in most people's living memory. Of course, we did have the break of uh, the Yugoslavia republics in the 90s, and there was tremendous fighting that took place in Bosnia and in Croatia. And of course, uh, when Kosovo separated from Serbia, that led to a NATO response, and many, many thousands of people in the former Yugoslav republics died in that fight. However, uh, the difference between that battle and what we're seeing now in Ukraine is, is the immense geography that's involved and the array of forces that are facing each other. And also the fact that one side in this battle has nuclear weapons. Uh, that, that is a huge difference between what we saw in the Yugoslav fight, which was essentially a series of civil wars. Uh, you really do have to go back to World War II. And you can watch films of the German advance on the Soviet Union during World War II there are similarities. Uh, watching massive tank battalions going against each other, it's very similar. Very eerie to see that same thing taking place in that same region of the world. Yeah. So certainly a watershed moment on the historical stage. Joe Serencioni, again with the Quincy Institute, bringing you into the conversation. If we are waking up to a new world today... What is that new world like? How is it different? And what should we know about the shape of global conflict uh, going forward? It's quite possible that this war could be a paradigm shifter, that it, it changes relations with Europe. It changes um, the relations within Europe and how they view NATO. It could very much dramatically affect our view of nuclear weapons, which are very much on people's mind as they watch this, this conflict. It will certainly end uh, Russia's aspirations to be taken seriously as a great power. President Biden said that uh, Russia is, is now becoming a pariah nation. And I, I'm convinced that you're going to see more of that over the weeks to come. Not just governments reacting, but individuals reacting, sports leagues reacting. I mean, who would hold an event in Russia now? Who would want to do business with Russia now? The kinds of sanctions we've seen rolled out so far in, 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 in two tranches are just the beginning. Uh, and it, and you know, I have to say, I think Putin's going to fall, win or lose, whether he's successful in occupying Ukraine or, 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 or not. I think he's going to fall. And the kinds of resistance you're seeing inside Russia, the brave people who just in the first day of the war, 1,700 Russians were arrested protesting the war, mass demonstrations in St. Petersburg. This is just beginning. And, and this is often the case with with autocratic regimes. They look invincible until they crumble. Yeah, yeah. So some very big changes afoot right now. Let's uh, get Donald Jensen's perspective into the mix. Uh, he, once again, is with the U.S. Institute of Peace. How does this new world look like from Russia, given your experience as uh, a diplomat in Moscow? Well, it's always a shock to go there. But as Joe said, and I largely agree with his comments, uh, this is a new wor world. I would go further, Keith, and say that this is a, a security turning point on the order of 1991, uh, 1945 in Yalta, maybe Versailles. The, uh, Putin is making a direct assault on the European security architecture that has really uh, protected the West, protected in many ways Russia, 
since the end of the Soviet Union, and now it's all under question. And uh, um, uh, that's very troubling because we don't really have anything really at hand to, pr to protect it. And I thought uh, as valiant as the West has been in the sanctions and other things, which I, other penalties, which I largely support, at the bottom line is that this did not deter Putin. We ought to take that very seriously. Uh, uh, and I think Putin will fall. I think uh, Ukraine will, in the end of the day, be a Central European power and country. In many ways, it is already. Uh, but it is a security moment. We're at a turning point. Hmm. But Keith, I wanted to make a couple more points because this, in many ways, kicks at an architecture that was already a little wobbly. Hmm. Uh, we've got a Russian view of the international system, which is very different than the way it's seen in Brussels and Washington. Russia sees itself as a victim of the uh, 1990s policies by the West. Uh, Russia is angry, at least the, the elites are very angry. They feel that uh, they have not been treated uh, fairly. And at the same time, they see their country as a power, which in their view, at least, not in the view of any, uh, is a worthy rival of the United States. And uh, that's, that's a very difficult thing to fight to combat, that sense of victimization and anger that Putin feeds on. That's the basis of his regime. But let me make a couple points about the, the international system. Number one, why is this breaking down? It's not Putin who started this. It has been sort of eroding for a variety of reasons. One, of course, is what I just said. The Russians and the Chinese look at the international order very differently than the United States does. So they feel themselves either threatened or uh, uh, frustrated. China in many ways, but in different in key ways, is sort of the same way. That's number one. Number two is that uh, there are there new new kinds of systems have risen to challenge this order. New cyber warfare, space issues. Uh, you know, the architecture that, that Joe and I have worked on for so many years had a number of rules that had evolved about during the Cold War. How to use nuclear weapons? When do you do a first strike, if ever? stuff like that, that is now eroded by new systems, hypervelocity weapons that come in outside this established architecture. That's destabilizing. And finally, I would say that yeah. the whole issue of deterrence is under question, not just because the sanctions didn't work very well, but because a blend between nuclear weapons and conventional is now more confusing than ever. The Russians seem like they would new use nuclear weapons at an earlier point than we would. We saw hair-raisingly, Putin sort of imply that on, on earlier in the week. So these factors have already made the architecture weaker than it should be, weaker than it has been. And that's what Putin is, is accelerating and taking advantage of. Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Right now we're trying to get a handle on just what world we've woken up to following Russia's decision to launch an invasion of Ukraine. 
Once again, now considered the largest ground war in Europe since World War II. Joining me, we just heard a second ago from Donald Jensen. He is the director for Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Also heard from Joe Cirincioni, national security analyst and author, also a distinguished fellow at the uh, Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And a little bit earlier, we heard from Jason Brooks, KCBS radio business reporter. So, uh, Jason Brooks, let's have you put your business reporter hat on. Uh, We haven't really talked about another sort of impact that a lot of people are expecting, and that is the economic impact of all of this. We've already seen some spikes in the price of oil in the oil markets. Uh, What are the broader impacts that this conflict might have? Oil is certainly a big key of this. It is Russia's key export is the basis of their economy. The sanctions to this point have not hit Russia's oil, but there is great fear over the oil supply being affected. Of course, 40 percent of Europe's natural gas also comes from Russia. Uh, President Biden this week said that the U.S. and partner nations are working together on a release of additional oil from global strategic reserves, knowing full well that oil surging higher in price will affect all parts of the economy, not just at the gas pump, but we already see what's happening in the supply chain with that bottleneck. Uh, That will increase shipping prices. It will increase uh, production prices. And inflation, which is already at a four-decade high in the United States, will only keep rising, and that'll eat away into consumers' checkbooks. And that will take place across the world, and it will depress economic activity. That's why they want to keep the price of oil in a reasonable place. Now, these sanctions on Russia will have an impact on Russia's economy. We've already seen Russia's stock market get hit very hard. Interest rates are surging higher in Russia. It's getting tougher to borrow money for Russia. Russia won't be able to deal in euros, dollars, pounds, or yen. And Russia will be seeking alternate avenues. And they perhaps do have some. India has said that they're willing to work out a mechanism where they can trade rupees with Russia in order to lessen the effect of sanctions. So while the sanctions can have a big effect... If not everybody's playing together on those sanctions, there will be a way for Russia to get around that. But clearly, there can be a serious impact on the global economy, in particular from a a rise in oil prices and any impact on commodities, uh, wheat, things of that nature being shipped. Uh, Tremendous impacts that can that can occur. And right now, we just simply don't know where that's going to go. Uh, you're seeing markets try to gauge that, but it's very, very difficult at this time. The sanctions have just been announced. It's going to take mm-hmm. a while for that to sift through the system. Yeah, and of course, that all plays into the calculus for how long and how strong these sanctions will be if they will have this destabling, destabilizing impact. Uh, many world leaders likely will be reluctant to really use the full force of uh, their sanction abilities. Uh, Joe Cirincioni, uh, turning things uh, back to you, let's have a little bit of a forward-looking perspective. I mean, we've we've heard here in a couple of different ways the prospects for uh, nuclear proliferation, a loss of our arms control, and and so many other grave um, outcomes that could follow from all this. How do we unwind this situation? What is the way to try to seek some kind of stability? What's the road forward? I have an answer for you, but first, you're not thinking grave enough. Mm. You're thinking that, well, we're not going to have arms control talks now, which is true. The U.S. Yeah. suspended the strategic stability talks it was having with Russia. Um, but it's, it's much worse than that. If you're listening to this in your home or in your car and you're feeling terrified, that is a rational response. Hmm. 
Hmm. You, you are correctly understanding what's going on here. It's horrifying enough that the, the, the killing of, of armed forces, of civilians in Ukraine, and it's going to get worse. The Russians showed us in Syria just how brutal they are willing to be. But the, the risk here is that this conflict escalates and it could escalate to the nuclear level. That's what has so many of us under worried about this. You have to understand Putin just last week exercised as part of his drills before the invasion, the integration of nuclear weapons use in conventional forces exercises. And he does this with all his major exercises. He showed off seven different nuclear capable weapons. In his announcement that of his special military operations, he made a direct nuclear threat. The first time a, a leader of a nuclear armed country not named Donald Trump or Kim Jong-un has made such a threat in decades. Mm. You really have to go back to the 80s to this. And, and you have, he's, he warned that anybody who would con confront Russia, would try to stop Russia, would face defeat and ominous consequences. And the problem is that both the US and Russia over the last 10, 15 years have developed something they both call integrated deterrence, meaning what Donald was talking about, that there's a seamless um, flow from economic weapons to conventional, to cyber, to nuclear. And the idea is to strengthen deterrence, to make your foe fear that they should give up at a lower level of conflict because you can prevail at the higher level. The risk is that once you get on this slope, it is very slippery and there is no clear fire break. There used to be a very strong break between the use of conventional forces and nuclear. These new doctrines erase it and there are new weapons have been introduced both by the United States and Russia that would use nuclear weapons in exactly this kind of, of scenario. So whether Putin is, is, is winning or if he's losing, it actually becomes more risky because they have a strategy called escalate to de-escalate. And they explicitly discuss that if they are losing a conflict with the West, they will use a nuclear weapon to demonstrate how serious the stakes are for them and to encourage the West to back off. Well, I don't think that's gonna be the West's response. So you see, this could get very bad very quickly. I'm sorry, I spent so much time on the threat. I didn't tell you how we get out of it. <laughs> well, I, 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 I guess that will just let uh, me just say very Let me just yeah. let me just say very briefly. When this is over, if and when we get through this, we have to rethink very seriously our own policies over the last 20 to 30 years. Could we have done things differently? Could we have done things that could have prevented this crisis? Could we have done things that could reduce the nuclear risks of such a moment? And I think the answer is yes, we could have. And we got to make, we can't blow it again. Yeah. If we get another chance, we have to come in with a new set of policies that reduce the risk that any conflict like this could escalate to the nuclear level. Yeah. Uh, well, we only have a couple of minutes left in the program, but uh, Donald Jensen, let's uh, give you a chance to weigh in. And uh, we just heard, uh, again, obviously, uh, a lot of the threats that we need to worry about, the big questions that we need to wrap our heads around. Um, do you want to take a whack at giving us uh, some uh, constructive way forward? What, what What is the answer? Well, I take a whack at being as gloomy as Joe has been, uh, if I might. All right, fair enough. Say, uh, Can't stop you. One of the differences between... Uh, 1991 and now is that the West is far less confident of itself, mm. con less confident of its values. And this comes at a time when the Ukrainian people, over who overwhelmingly want to be in the European Union and NATO, 
still believe in those values. So the extent that this this uh, crisis turns out badly, as Joe just said, reflects badly on the West in a lot of uh, dimensions. I'm showing my Jesuit high school training uh, here, but values matter, and our unwillingness to put those to be to, to our willingness to be cynical, our unwillingness to defend those values at a time when countries around the world, like Ukraine, many still believe in these values, makes the West look very bad. It makes the West look less crit crit credible. And uh, 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 that's going to ba backfire too, even as the dangers that Joe talked about threaten us all. This is a multi-dimensional problem. Well said. Uh, well, Jason, I want to give you the closing word on this. Uh, again, you do have your uh, podcast on global crises. Uh, if you could, just as you know, as as we said, if the project of this program is to try to help us acclimate to the the new challenges that we need to wrap our heads around, what are the sorts of global crises that you're going to be tracking in the months and years ahead? Keith, I think iridentists around the world are looking very closely at what Putin is doing in Ukraine, and even more importantly, the world's response. And you have to go to China, Taiwan. That That is the main focus right now. Uh, President Xi uh, and the Communist Party in China desperately want Taiwan to be fully integrated with China. Taiwan obviously wants nothing to do with that. Taiwan has been well-funded, well-supported, and, and heavily militarized thanks to the U.S. It's got tremendous support. But if the world does not respond forcefully to Putin's aggression on Ukraine, and even more so on further aggressions, I think that will embolden President Xi and China to consider a move on Taiwan, uh, thinking that perhaps the U.S. will not come to Taiwan's rescue and the Taiwanese will be on their own. It would not be an easy fight for China. China has not been involved in a major shooting war since 1979 when it went into Vietnam and had about as much success in Vietnam as the U.S. did. China is very careful. They don't go willy-nilly into conflicts. But China wants Taiwan back. And if the world does not prevent Putin from further increasing his reach across Europe and elsewhere, China will have its eyes on Taiwan. Yeah, well, uh, certainly all the world is watching what's going to happen in Ukraine over the next weeks and months. Uh, but we are going to have to round this conversation out right here and thank our guests for joining us. Once again, we just heard right there from Jason Brooks, a KCBS radio business reporter, also the host of the Crisis Next Door podcast. Jason Brooks, thanks so much. Thanks, Keith. And going to say thank you as well to Joe Serencioni, once again, a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thank you, Keith. And finally, going to say thank you to Donald Jensen, the director for Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Donald Jensen, thanks to you. Thank you. Glad to be on. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.